And welcome to the Daily Ratings Podcast. It's a show where each week we'll sit down with Vincent Daly to get his thoughts on the latest movies he's been watching, both older films and new releases. And don't worry, there's no spoilers. Vince will give a brief review of the movie, share some thoughts, and of course, then rate the film. The Daily Ratings are always fair, honest, and most importantly, they're consistent. On today's show, Vince will be rating and reviewing... We have Waterloo, directed by Sergei Bondarchuk. We have newly released films May December by Todd Haynes, Silent Night by John Woo, Dream Scenario by Christopher Borgley, and finally, Godzilla Minus One, directed by Takashi Yamazaki. It's going to be a great show, folks, so stay tuned and enjoy. How we doing, buddy? Tom, how's it going? Uh, it's going okay. You're super loud again. Super loud. This is week two, folks, of a new system. So we're still getting <laughs> the jump scare, the holiday jump scare. Um, ben, how's your week of movies? We're sitting across from each other. We're drinking our Boilo. We're nice and toasty. Coal region drink. <laughs> right. Um, Further toxing us. How was your week? <laughs> <laughs> By regional drinks alone. Uh, how was your week in movies, man? Uh, week was uh, was interesting. <laughs> it was it was all over the place. Uh, didn't really have a fifth new release unless I wanted to go see Trolls, uh, whatever. Tro- yeah, but that, <laughs> Trolls been, Four. That's been in theaters for a while. Yeah, yeah. That's all right. So, um, really, uh, was happy to not only find a free copy of Waterloo on YouTube, oh, no less. It's a newsletter. Yeah. Thank you for sending that our way. Uh, it was. Uh, uh, it was interesting. I like that when uh, there's something that is just free that we can put out there for any kind of uh, watch along. So hopefully some uh, some of you folks at home check out Waterloo uh, on YouTube because there's like uh, three different versions. Oh really? Oh yeah, there's three versions, all pretty high quality. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was awesome. You don't get yeah. a free movie often. Yeah, yeah. I had one weird ad towards the end that just kind of uh, stripped me out of the experience. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, free's free. Really? I had no ads. Yeah, yeah. I guess, and we also have ad blocker. God sure. knows if you try to watch this two-hour and 13-minute film, <laughs> how many ads are going to be popping up. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, if you got ad blocker, YouTube, you can get Waterloo dismay. for free. Uh, yeah. I like this week of movies because it is random. It is weird. Mostly new, which I always love getting yeah, new movies yeah. on. exactly. Because um, there's so many new movies now that we're approaching the end of the year mm. where people try to really, you know, for the Oscars. A lot of musicals, believe it or not. Both The Color Purple and Wonka are both full-fledged musicals. Wow. Uh, we'll have uh, in the new year Mean Girls, yeah. which is a musical as well. I'm okay. I'm okay with it. Yeah. I don't know if it's a big anniversary. I don't know why we're doing it exactly. But yeah, I, yeah. I'm a Timmy fan anyway. So You're right, right. But no, I like this week. I watched Waterloo and I watched Dream Scenario. Mm, okay. And uh, I kind of watched uh, May December. I didn't, but I kind of did. We'll get <laughs> we'll get into that when we hit it. It's great. But basically, let's <laughs> let's just get into it right. Well, I, and we have another Godzilla film. Yeah. So this yeah. is Japanese proper Godzilla film. Uh huh. 
uh, obviously we just had our have the just our largest project we ever did which was is the godzilla, godzilla special, special yeah this is the one that just is coming out now it's japanese made yep and then we have the u.s new godzilla movie coming out uh, in 2024 yep exactly. and then apple just came out with legacy monarch, monarch legacy of monsters yeah which so far episode one and two is poopy trash oh really okay i but didn't even bother checking we'll see it out. we'll see yeah. what happens <laughs> okay all right so let's get into it right away let's jump back into 1970 this is waterloo and the reason why we're covering this is i think it's pretty obvious <laughs> uh, but let's get into it right away vin let's set up the film a little bit and how did you like Waterloo. Yeah, uh, so Waterloo is a super interesting film history um, uh, case uh, for any cinephiles out there, uh, folks at home. This is a, a very interesting production story, uh, and with little theme to the four new slots this week, I was going to watch what I wanted to watch, and damn it, I wanted to watch Waterloo. Yeah, I was happy to see uh, it. Yeah, um, my interest was peaked in research for our Napoleon review last week, and where I found uh, the title battle in this movie had had up to 15,000 Russian extras, all dressed to the nine in uh, in musket gear and, yep. and, uh, and this type of uh, error-appropriate clothing. Nevertheless, though, uh, it was a, a rabbit hole that I went down with this film because at the point of research, I didn't know I was going to be covering it. So I just kind of looked into reviews to see if it was worth the time, and this film was despised by critics at the time yeah, for it, its excess. It was a, it was a box office bomb. Yeah, when it when it came out, box office bomb, and critics panned it. Yeah, essentially. I mean, including Robert Ebert in that crowd as well, just absolutely skewering this film. Like yes. this must have been like the Transformers you, of 1970. <laughs> like they hated the scale, they hated the excess. So of that's it. what they hated about it. Uh, uh, that and there's a lot of critique around that um, it's a half-ass attempt at t- trying to tell a Napoleon story, which I'll get into wow. in a little bit. Yeah. Those are the two sides well, of uh, the skewering of that's this. That's a good thing but most of those critics aren't alive today <laughs> after what we just had a couple weeks ago. Shaking in his grave, Ebert. <laughs> yeah. uh, this was a co-production between Italian financing through Dino De Laurentiis and Soviet Russian d- director Sergei Bondarchuk. Dino is, uh, as a producer, has plenty of gems uh, connected uh, under him over the years, but Sergei is a is a bit harder to distinguish. Um, he has a little bit of an acting career. His directing is around these kind of grandiose grandiose uh, projects like um, uh, 1966's War and Peace, and oh, that kind of okay. defines his okay. career as these like big book or historical pieces, uh, right. you know, period pieces. Yeah, I didn't recognize the name too much. Yeah. Now, this was the one, when we had brought up, when we talked about Napoleon, I was talking about a guy who wanted to do a massive, like, three-part movie, mm. and I think this was him. Oh, really? And he ended up doing Waterloo, which mm. is just settling, really, Napoleon during this sure. post-coming-back from, from first exile. Right, from first exile yep. and then into Waterloo. I think he wanted to make it three-part movies over mm. his life, basically. Wow. And then I think wow. through studios and money, you know uh, what I mean, what right. happens. A, a, a Soviet production but as well. This is a, right. <laughs> yeah. This was a guy who cared yes. majorly. Yes. Major, I mean, just look at the amount of extras, but he cared so much. And it's just such a stark contrast between this oh. guy who we don't really know <laughs> and a Ridley Scott yeah. in the year 2023. <laughs> and watching these films back-to-back was surreal. Like uh, – um, boy, are they just polar opposite approaches to the subject oh matter, gosh. to a period piece. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. The story here, folks, in Waterloo strategically focuses on the moments after Napoleon's first exile to Elba and his dramatic 
return to power, and I really mean dramatic. This sequence of events are uh, not only historic, but made for the big screen for how theatrically things play out. I mean, his return, him kind of turning everyone on his side, and then just marching almost uh, without resistance back into France yeah. and back into leadership is is huge. Uh, let me say that watching this and how this movie portrays that, you will really see how pathetic, and I mean, mean pathetic, how Ridley Scott's attempt was. Not only did that attempt with, with Napoleon that we covered last week try to cover way too much, it downplays real bombastic events in his life like these moments. Just seeing them done up to the nine in this oh, was so much. was satisfying. Yeah, it was it was uh, really it, satisfying. It, absolutely, totally. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll say the portrayal, but portrayal here might feel a little bit overkill. We'll talk about some hammy acting in a second with this film, but uh, it fits the expectations of the audience, fits the expectations of the history, and is satisfying for what we want that history to be uh, in approaching a uh, you know historical biopic or a story piece like this. Mm -hmm. um, like we spoke about just a second ago, what shocks me is that some of the critique around this film is around the story telling a narrow history of Napoleon. Uh, personally, I have always been a believer that a good story centers on the most important moments in a character's life, or at least that is the mark of a story worth telling. A perfect example of something that does this is like Darkest Hour. Not an amazing, amazing movie, but do we see the focus of Darkest Hour uh, zone in on all of Churchill's life? Right. No. It's a character-defining event that puts him to the test and gives a spotlight to the audience to see how this character matches up in his, not his greatest moment, but a great okay. moment. Sorry, it took me a second to be reminded with Darkest Hour. Is, oh, sorry. That came out uh, maybe five years ago. 2019, I want to say. Okay, so yeah. four or five years ago. Yeah. And that was What's-His-Face portrayal uh, of— Gary Oldman of uh, Winston Churchill. Which everyone agreed, great performance. Sure. movie was a little blah. Yeah, a little blah. Definitely a little Oscar bait. Yeah, def definitely. Um, but I, I, I feel like as far as uh, a, a kind of a, a biopic history piece like this, yes. you don't need to tell the entire history of it. We need to see the character defining moments of what the legend is a legend yeah, for in yeah. the first place. Uh, and I feel like that's an identical here for how this story portrays Napoleon's attempt at redemption. Um, the most important moments of his first exile, turning turning everything around and having one last go uh, at the title battle, of course, yeah. being Waterloo. And that's why I love the title of Waterloo, because you know what to expect. Yeah, sure. That's why when you take the title of Half the movie Napoleon, being a, yeah, yeah. man, it, it's just, that's why we were talking about the, the Bonapartes. Yeah, Jos the Bonapartes. Josephine and Napoleon or something like that uh, would have been just so much more acceptable after what was done with yeah. Ridley. This, Absolutely. you know, you walk in knowing exactly what you're getting. And like yeah. you said, they hone in on that. That's what they focus on. Mm -hmm. And that's what you get. Yeah. And it's great. Absolutely. I would say maybe it's a little bit of a burden to the film that over half the runtime is the Battle of Waterloo, which can be a combination of boring, <laughs> exhausting, uh, impressive. You know, I mean, it's, it's a real mix. Uh, in my book, good story writing starts with 
the defining moment in a character's life. Yeah. Uh, this movie has it where it counts with that. So I, I completely disagree with uh, the the narrow por- portrayal or that critique of this film then. This movie itself is a, a lot more hammy than I expected, but uh, for my enjoyment, this was a good thing. Uh, this made me feel the, the gravitas of Napoleon as a historical figure. With that said, I mean, wow, 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 <laughs> is there some overacting from, uh, what's the guy's name? Rod, Rod Steiner. Steiger, 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 yeah. He's been in plenty of stuff too that, uh, um, unfortunately, nothing's coming to mind right now. (laughs) Uh, But it it basically makes it seem like Napoleon was only the leader because he spoke the loudest. He's just the loudest (laughs) one in the room. He's so loud. He does an amazing job, even when the outdoor scenes, uh, when he's, he's, you know, speaking to an entire crowd or standing (laughs) on a balcony. And it's like, this is how they, wow. Because sometimes you watch stuff or something when make, someone's making a huge speech. <laughs> yeah. I mean, notably, one of the worst parts of all the Lord of the Rings movie <laughs> is when Sauron is talking to the army and he's just kind of like talking at a normal voice. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, how's, a, how's the guy in the back hearing this? How's the guy in the back hearing this, really? What's going on here? It's doing yeah. some wizard projecting a little You're bit. Right. <laughs> With this, you watch it and it's like Rod Steiger is freaking – He's the, killing he it. He is killing it. <laughs> He's yelling without screaming. Like, yes. He's still able to talk. See, this Absolutely. Is, I think you would be great at playing Napoleon. <laughs> you have such a booming voice. I would love to play that Napoleon. That can permeate through brick walls at times, it seems. <laughs> but um, ha- hammy, but the right guy for the job. Exactly. And I think hammy in the right moments. Um, you yes. know, I, I, I personally really love this performance. I see where it could be seen as bad. You know, maybe this just highlights me in liking something that's technically bad. Uh, we'll call it Predator Two uh, okay. s- syndrome. <laughs> so this performance specifically falls in that same category. That I, I I see how it's cartoonish. I see how it could be bad, but I think it fits the bill uh, for what's going forward. I, I did have one thing I was thinking of with these performances, mm-hmm. and I don't know if this is just me kind of talking my out of, out of my ass on this one. But when you get to a film that's now over fifty years old and, and older films, mm. uh, the way the sound is done. The way mm. edits are kind of sewn together. Yeah. Having a more or, you know, the way the cuts are or maybe close-ups or not close-ups. Yeah. It's almost like having the actors express themselves in a more charismatic or more hammy way for mm-hmm. those older films. Mm-hmm. You almost give a longer lease to. It's it, And, like, the biggest example would be in watching a play mm. because you ha- you're literally watching from far away people sure. on a stage and they're really overdoing it. Their makeup is overdone. Mm-hmm. With these older films, I feel like this guy doing this – just the fact that it's an older movie like this, mm-hmm. the hamminess is sold better mm. for a 2023 watch. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. If this guy was doing this now with modern cinematography sure, and sure. the way things are edited and shot, yeah. it would be like – What's happening uh, here? Exactly. Absolutely. Does that make sense? I think it's also – that observation also comes because we are – it's like a an ice bath coming off of Joaquin's performance, ah. which is so so little, you know, yeah. uh, you know, arguably not trying right. even in a lot of scenes. So, I, I absolutely agree with you. I think yeah. there's there's something to be said about um, this coming out in 1970 on the dot, yeah, uh, and then also us what we're what is in very recent history of of what we watch with this story. So, among the cast, we get a brief appearance from Orson Welles, which I personally love to say added to the. Uh, the ham uh if he wasn't clearly falling asleep in his chair 
hair. I don't. This was. He just was a ham yeah, on yeah, screen. Exactly. Was, <laughs> this is prime wino Orison Wells. Uh, I mean, absolutely. It was brief, but I, I enjoyed it. Yep. I can't say I enjoyed how the British were depicted in here. We get Christopher Plummer, who I think is kind of disappointingly underutilized in, in creating a compelling antagonist. The British are depicted as uh, overly confident, mm -hmm. still a little bit ragtag, confident that they don't even need to try, and it comes off a bit goofy for that reason. Did you kind of get Interesting. that? Interesting. I didn't quite get that. I'm okay with hearing that now. I could, I could see how you got there. Mm. My big thing with the British was – well, I, I thought Chris Plummer was looked awesome. Yeah, like, absolutely. He was very cool. Yeah, absolutely. He was extremely cool yeah. in the film. Uh, probably might be my favorite performance of the film. Really? Okay. Yeah. The stuff with dealing with the British was more so issues I had with the film in entirety, mm -hmm. which was things are kind of happening, and I feel like it's a little bit difficult for the audience to really know what's going on sometimes. Mm, so yes. that definitely goes on for the battle sequences, yep. wishing that we were clued in a little bit more, or shown mm. maps, or just, you know, something. It, because it's so massive, it's almost unwieldy. Yeah. Unwieldy. And for the British, you know, we're really introduced, or we really spend a lot of time with them pre- battle mm. with this big ball that's going on mm -hmm. and there's just a lot going on yeah and i think you know what i mean just with more candles than i've ever seen it like was, i'm glad you said something about the candles <laughs> this not only the people the yeah. amount of people the amount of candles <laughs> and the incredible i mean really they're all practical too all practical effects. yeah right um the, the set pieces were really good yeah uh, uniforms were really good and just the candles were a many absolutely um but that's my biggest thing where there's just always so much going on when the British are on screen mm. that it's hard for me to I don't know, get a feel for sure. a little bit more. Be, sure. be as connected as maybe you want to be to a Christopher Plummer yep. who it's like you want to either be really rooting for him or hate him but love him and how cool yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think my, my main takeaway though more than anything is I just really enjoyed the filmmaking here which I feel like we're probably on the same page on with you know all the practical effects and all the costumes and, and the set work and whatnot. Little stylistic moments pepper the film where bold shot is thrown in or an actor breaks the fourth wall and it was enjoyable seeing some risk being taken even if they all necessarily didn't pay off mm -hmm. on this film. Uh, of course, at the center of this praise is the mass of production itself. This remains one of the largest productions in history. And without special effects on the battlefield, captures a scale that is unbelievable. Now, I'll talk about that scale in kind of legibility in, in, in just a second. But, you know, when you consider the costume work and the choreography needed to achieve some sort of you know, realistic uh, musket line type of look to the to the many extras, it becomes seriously impressive feat. Yeah, I would say what takes this away is uh, unfortunately when they get to the battlefield there is a lot of ADR overdubbed lines oh um, big time uh, almost exclusively that and it just go into what that is a little bit uh so uh, this is just where a uh, the actual uh, recording on set is not going to be used in the final production of the film that would be called a scratch track mm -hmm. or something like that and mostly all of the audio lines are going to be overdubbed by the actor in a studio after the fact. Yeah. Old films like this, 1970 included, this is where you're going to get maybe some desynced lips with actually what's being said. Definitely. Uh, and that can actually really turn off a lot of people from older films, in period, uh, just for the lack of technical um, uh, technical sophistication. Uh, but uh, here, that those overdubbed lines, they just don't sound great uh, in comparison to, I almost wish we got the real chaos of what was 
what must have been the sound of that. Uh, it was filmed in Ukraine, you know, this mm-hmm. open, yeah. open field. Uh, it would have been interesting, but I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know how they would have done it. Um, I mean, he was definitely going for so much authenticity that maybe they even tried. And it's like, this is not possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All the explosions are real. Yeah. I mean, the, the, I mean, some scenes you're watching, it's like, okay, horses died here. Horse, <laughs> yeah, horses for sure horses. died. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I have 15,000 soldiers. Yep. Uh, I have 2,000 cavalrymen on top of that. Oh, on top. I wow. believe that. That's what I had read. Wow. And then 70 circus stunt riders. And those are the ones <laughs> falling off the horses. Yeah. Um, seriously, seriously impressive. I agree with the sound. And they wanted to use when they're shown battalions or certain, mm-hmm. I have a no at that point, but they wanted to use real numbers. Yes. So they're just moving around the 15,000, but to actually be real, real yeah. numbers. So you can see what it actually looked like. Yeah. Incredible. Uh, it is just gets chaotic. <laughs> it's, it doesn't and, have legibility. Right. To and it. with yeah. the sound and trying to keep up, it's, it's tough. It's yeah. a little bit tough for the audience to be f- fully in the know. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's really where... I kind of finish my thoughts on on the film. I think, you know, with over half of the film's runtime being the Battle of Waterloo, uh, it sadly prevents uh, me defending the bit, the film a bit more because simply it's a lot to get through. Uh, like I said, it, it's equally impressive. I think um, cinema nerds or if you're into the productions of film, this is a, a great watch on top of it's free to just uh, try to examine what's actually going on behind the scenes of these scenes. The scenes itself, though, the battle itself does not have legibility on screen. It's very hard to tell what the hell is going on half the time, <laughs> which is so funny because it's on the polar opposite end of the spectrum of Napoleon last week, uh, Scott's uh, Repo- Napoleon, oh, it, mm-hmm. where battles are just so overly simplistic that it's like okay well especially waterloo waterloo (laughs) is like on the tiniest little field yeah you don't have no idea of the scale it's a totally different battle watching this movie to napoleon absolutely uh if anything this made me reflect a lot on how battles are done in other films mainly the lord of the rings trilogy and saving private ryan uh and how battle legibility is such a challenge for a film mm. while anyone could be impressed with how many soldiers are on screen it's difficult to tell moment to moment stakes uh, i think back to helms deep and two towers where it's so well communicated mm-hmm. of yeah. which side is winning how the tides are turning within such a long battle uh, and certainly a lot of scale similar to this film maybe not you know exactly but right. as far as costume work and everything like that i feel like maybe it also boils down to a simple fact that i don't know if the costume work was um, defined enough to tell which side is which. Uh, it, it, there's just so much going on. Yeah, there is yeah. so much going on. Exactly. Even almost at that point when people are talking, or if you're gonna do the you know the in studio sound, I just I honestly like show me a map more. Yeah, like be that sure. treat us like children more yeah, because there's yeah. so much. Yeah, absolutely. The funny thing I was thinking about that Helm's Deep scene last week because mm. uh, it took three months to shoot, mm-hmm. which is longer than the entire film with Napoleon took. <laughs> But uh, that's, so that's I guess, neither here nor there. <laughs> no, that's definitely here. It's <laughs> definitely right on. So, but yeah, that, that that's kind of what the mental exercise came from in, in watching this film of uh, battle literacy in, yeah, in movies. And, and and similar, uh, I would point to Saving Private Ryan, if only just for yeah, the, the crazy yep. oneer that you get with the tank and and sniping scenes and whatnot. It's it's about communicating the stakes to the film, and I feel like of the scale, certainly it's to be applauded, but. 
but it is fantastical. It, yeah, yeah. It, it just loses a little bit there. Yeah. So uh, for that reason, I think the experience sits on opposite ends of the spectrum, like I said, for what we covered last week. But I personally will take it over downplaying what is expected to be grand. I will take the approach to be grand itself. We're going to go ahead and give Waterloo 1970 a 71. Okay, 71%. I really didn't know where you were going to land on this because there's elements even that can be a little bit boring. Like I thought mm. the battle scene was super fantastical, so mm-hmm. it was just a visual feast for the eyes a little sure. bit. You yeah. might be confused a little bit, but yeah. it's something. You still get those scenes where he's just doing a total 360 with the camera and you just see the entire battlefield yes, and all the extras. It's and, wild. It yeah. is wild. But leading up to that too can be a little bit just boring, a little bit taxing. Yeah, I think I like 71 a lot. I think that's impressive for a 53-year-old movie also at this point. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I don't, I'm not going to give it a two-shoes, but I would totally recommend it. Like, check out. It is, for my research, um, no production has had more people as far as extras go. Mm. Still to this date, this is the most ever used wow. for a film to be made. Which is great. Which is it's unbelievable. Yeah. So it's, we definitely highly recommend wa- watching – the Waterloo battle scene of Waterloo, yeah. 1970. So. And I'll be honest, maybe there's a, a slight factor here in that both of us are positive on this film because uh, Ridley Scott's Napoleon was so <laughs> immensely disappointing uh, in the ways that this movie wins as well. Right. But yeah, I mean, I, I, you know. I found it pretty easy to judge either one. Yeah. Yeah, because they're different. They're, to- they're such different movies, <laughs> yeah. and one is just a- and Napoleon, a, the actual performance, right? Of, oh my you know, gosh, the character yeah. on screen is so different. Don't expect a lot of French accents still. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that I is booted something. it up. Well, I thought it was going to be in Russian yeah. because um, Bonnetchuk is like an actual like Soviet director, right? Right. Um, so uh, I-, I was just impressed that it had you know English at all, but <laughs> I thought of you immediately. I was just like, oh, another one. <laughs> no, no one's even trying to do uh, French accent. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. All right, Vin. Well, let's go ahead and get right into our donation segment then, Vin, because we have four new films yet again. Yeah. Five last week, four new this week. It's awesome. So, okay, folks. So we do have a producer for this week. It is a returning producer. Maxwell Farnsworth came in, mm. and he came in with $24, and he writes, two movie tickets. Is there a donation tier that would allow me to fight you two? <laughs> <laughs> the cage match. Uh, how about this? Keep on donating, and we'll just see. We'll just see. Just, we'll, just we'll, don't stop we'll donating. Catch you in the streets. Uh, <laughs> You'll catch these hands. <laughs> uh, Max, thank you so much. You are the executive producer of episode 111. You continue to be a producer in total for the daily ratings. Um, folks, if you're wondering what's going on here, Vin and I, the daily ratings, we are. Comp- wait, 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 wait. Hold up. What? That was his note? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> two, two movie tickets, which he took the change off. <laughs> Technically, it should be around 25 and change, but that's right. 24 bucks. All right, all right. Two movie tickets. Is there a donation tier that would allow me to fight you two? Yes, correct. That is it. End of note. That's fantastic. End of line. I love that. (laughs) Uh, Matt, thank you. Max, thank you so much. Uh, Again, just keep on donating and we'll see. I don't know. But, we uh, got to fund the cage match. Yeah. <laughs> get, that's when we'll take sponsors, maybe. I don't know if we're going to have a value for value That's title a great match. idea. That's a great yeah. idea. God, who would be our sponsors, too? Yeah. Ridiculous. Uh, okay, so like I said, producer of episode 111. Folks, we are completely producer-supported, so we are not going to deal with corporate advertising. We are not going to sell you a bunch of crap for basically our benefit, our gain. Um, we want to stay... True to you, we just want to stay producer-supported, which is just like Max. You become a producer by donating into the show. So you can go to the – yes, 
What's that, Finn? <laughs> a very good, functional, working donation <laughs> page. Yes. Round of applause to Tom. Uh, he uh, is oh now an honorary gosh. IT of the Daily Ratings production. <laughs> so we have had this, the, just the... the, the the worst donation page oh. that we have been paying. This plugin that we try to been using and paying for. Yep. It's been trash ever since the beginning. It's been trash for the past few weeks. <laughs> Unusable. So finally, if you go to the dailyratings.com, go to the donations tab. It's all there. Uh, the value for value payment, which is whatever value you are getting from the daily ratings. Just put a number to it. Send it our way. Um, but there's also set donations. You can do monthly, weekly. So you can set up. It's all right there. Our Venmo is there. Satoshi's if you're into podcasting 2.0. Um, it's all right there at the dailyratings.com on the donations tab. Uh, finally, finally. And we're going to work on a little bit more, but it's all there, thank mm, God. Yeah, and fully functioning. The The website is no longer dead in the water, and yeah. uh, we appreciate uh, anyone uh, that has... Uh, uh, held off on a donation uh, to yeah. uh, to just just when we get things straightened out, on our end, you know. <laughs> and it's there. Thank God. Yeah. Uh, but again, like I said, there, folks, it's a value for value. It's a value for value model, which basically means: Are you enjoying the podcast? Are you having a good time every week? Are you using the website legitimately when you just want to sit down and watch a movie that we make you laugh or cry or cry laughter, whatever? The point <laughs> is, that's value in your pocket. Can you send us some value back in our pocket? So, you know, we don't have tier structures here because 100 bucks or 5 bucks is so much different from this person to that person, whatever. All the content is here for you. It's technically free. But we just ask, we put so much time and energy into this. Um, it does cost some money to do this and a hell of a lot of time. Many, many hours on a weekly basis goes into this. So if you're finding it valuable, can you send some value back our way? So Max decided to send us two movie tickets here for 24 bucks, kind of. 24 <laughs> bucks, Max. Thank you so much. Uh, we'll see you in the ring at a later date. You were executive producer, <laughs> like I said, of 111. Thank you so much, Max. And people don't forget, it is the dailyratings.com and head over to the donations tab. Uh, just a quick reminder, too, the newsletter comes out every Tuesday morning. If you want to sign up for that, you go down to the bottom of the website, put your name and email, and you'll be good to go. All right, Vin, with that, let's keep things moving to our now in theaters newly released film. And this one is not in theaters, so let's get this one <laughs> out of the way. This is a new Netflix release. This is by Todd Haynes. This is called May December with mm. uh, two uh, big-time lead actresses. So let's get into mm. it right away. Maybe why this or, in general, how'd you like it? <laughs> well, I, I think uh, this movie was getting a lot of critical buzz, and that's why it was on my radar versus – Actually, a fair amount of Netflix releases we just there flat was, out didn't get to this year. Yeah, you know, yep. Ed uh, Helms just came out with one. Oh, sure, mm -hmm. sure, absolutely. Yeah, there's always the the comedy circuit of Netflix that uh, I, I don't want to touch with a ten foot pole. <laughs> Bill Burr came out with one recently. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right, that's right. Uh, writing wise, this shares a talent with uh, Sammy Birch, who was a part of the Hunger Games series as a casting director. So, kind of an interesting jump from casting director to writer. <laughs> and this is now her first script picked up for feature collaboration with Alex Mechanic, who is uh, a similar newcomer. Uh, and honestly, this was a pure blind watch for me, um, uh, which uh, I'm kind of regretting not understanding at least the angle of the story or watching a trailer or something like that. Okay. Um, because I found myself frustrated in the first hour of this um, seeing – uh, the, the exact tone the film wanted to take, uh, which is interesting and a little bit um, controversial, certainly. 
like I said, I kind of watched this. But <laughs> yeah, I yeah. When did you turn off? So this was this was purposely my fall asleep movie. <laughs> when like I, I didn't even want to watch it. I was just like, all right, I'll have this on and fall asleep too. So Rad three different times in the middle of the night just you woke just... up and it's just like, what's going on here? This looks terrible. <laughs> this looks boring and god awful. It's billed as a comedy and drama. I was not getting any comedy. Yeah, that's uh, for sure. And I think that's a total miscast uh, or mis mis portrayal uh, of, uh, of the genre. This, uh, yeah. Okay. This, right. Because it is. Uh, I, I feel like if you're trying to see it as a comedy, that's where this movie gets weird uh, and a little uncomfortable okay. with it. So, uh, in May, December, uh, possibly uh, one of the, one of the worst titles. It's a bad title. <laughs> yeah, it's a bad title. Natalie Portman plays an actress named Elizabeth. During research for a semi-controversial documentary role, the subject of this documentary is Julianne Moore's character Gracie, who some time ago was involved in a scandalous relationship with an underage boy, now her husband, played by Charles Melton. Uh, Charles Melton comes from Riverdale fame. I've heard terrible things about that show. Okay. He was actually pretty decent in this, so maybe maybe he's he can shed some of that uh, <laughs> low-budget TV fame. We unpack the uncomfortable reality of this slowly, and the most important factors aren't necessarily told to us directly. I feel like the most important aspect of this is that the original age divide is a perfect example. Gracie being 36 with having an affair with a seventh grader. Uh, one really? F- yeah. That is the subject here. And obviously after the aftermath of that specifically. Mm-hmm. What unfolds is a high-strung drama that uh, picks the scabs of our characters to reveal all sorts of insecurity, trauma, and immaturity uh, that has been suppressed for so many years. I really, I, I have no idea where this gets off calling it uh, even even slightly a comedy. It just wasn't good. Uh, I, w- I certainly wasn't laughing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, um, and, and normally I would, I would stay away from any spoilers, that little bit of a dive into how exactly this uh, underage relationship uh, or this, uh, you know, pedophile relationship. Yeah, the, the premise is weird. So it, Julianne's more character is aware and allows uh, what's-her-face character to, like, come and shadow her. Yeah. Basically, the backstory is that she has already done the jail time, was pregnant oh, I was say, in jail. the movie end with her being in jail? Okay. <laughs> right, right. Had already done the jail time, gotcha. was pregnant in jail, and now we see... Uh, I guess, I guess, in some ways, for especially for the script writing element of this, the rare look into uh, the, aftermath the aftermath of how do, how does that relationship actually exist? And she ended up marrying the seventh grader. Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, who now has they now have two children. The children are going to college themselves. Uh, Melton is playing like a, a early thirty something in this, so uh, it, it it's definitely odd. But if it's going to be a, a recommendation, recommendation anywhere it's in the emotional uh, again picking at the scabs yeah. it's designed to kind of uh, portman's uh visiting of the family is creating a lot of pressure and uncovering a lot of stuff that has just been brushed aside for so many years are we made is the audience made to feel bad for julianne moore's character uh, a little bit uh but See, it is, is definitely I, great it is definitely great okay <laughs> Well, the post Me Too world, like this is getting critical buzz. Yeah. In fact, some of the ratings are just going through them now. Yeah, yeah. Shocking. Oh, sure. For a film like this, <laughs> sure. it's just like it just seems so hypocritical. Yeah, I, I'm definitely there with you. I will say to the film's credit, it does make things gray, but okay. there is also a uncomfortable accepting quality to the town 
uh, as a mm-hmm, whole mm-hmm. that has dealt with this controversy for so long. So there's a pensive soundtrack and a serious tone to the film. Uh, like Portman is stepping into something strange, and she really is. Uh, the story doesn't shy away from the controversial angle here, but it also doesn't do a great job with spotlighting it either. If there was anything I would say to describe the tone of the film is that it's uh, intentionally gray. It also feels like an older-style drama um, that would be ripe for Oscar bait, um, let's say out of like the early 90s. It feels like an Oscar bait film, okay. but also an older style of an Oscar bait Screenplay-wise, acting-wise? Uh, uh, top to bottom, okay. really. Uh, and, and maybe, if anything, driven home the most through through this kind of pensive piano soundtrack that, uh, <laughs> that is that is put there. For a lot of reasons, I, I, I just was not hooked by this, mostly for this muddied spotlight, but my opinion was really solidified for me when the emotional beats would come and the story has little to say. The, in that story-wise, I was engaged, I was looking to unpack this situation, but many scenes offer little new information. Um, whether I was uh, about that information or not, mm-hmm. completely aside, the actual information that is unpacked in the film uh, is drip-fed. It's crumbs. Uh, because the scandal overtook the town so many years ago, a lot of scenes with Portman are just drilling down on the same info again and again Again, uh, we get different perspectives from people, you know, really anyone you can think of, uh, but it takes forever for a real impact to happen with the story or a new nugget that is not right, repeated right. to be unfold. Without a doubt, uh, what is really interesting is puzzling together the bizarre parts of trauma and love that are in these characters. But I'm sorry, just too little unfolds to keep my attention. Mm-hmm. And that's where, I mean, I la- <laughs> boy, if you chose uh, the right film to fall asleep to. Uh, it and really I did. Was. And I did. <laughs> I love that you're you're waking up in a in a fever dream of, and still hating this. <laughs> <Yeah. though. laughs> the cold sweat. Kind of uh, seems just like a snoozer. Yeah, it is. Okay, okay. it is. Okay. Portman's good. Um, like I said, uh, Charles Melton. Uh, I I think he was the best in the film. Uh, really? For I usually like Julianne Moore. Uh, yeah, same. I, I think they were both good. And if anything, with Portman's credit, she plays a very interesting character, uh, almost a, a – not an antagonist, but definitely an aggressor. She's trying to poke the bear a little bit. Coming across as almost journalist. Yes, yeah, exactly. Because I guess she kind of is. She's trying yeah, to – Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is a documentary. She also does have um, kind of an undefined role of more of a creative creative role in this okay. uh, than just being uh, uh, the actress uh, playing Gracie. Hollywood loves this. <laughs> Hollywood loves movies about them, kind of. We, yeah. We're gonna we're gonna look at the act actor, yeah, you know, doing a study, you know, <laughs> studying for a role. Sure, this is very sure. much just stroking on ego a little bit. Uh, yeah, I, I honestly I can't defend it because it is it okay. is it focuses a lot on Portman's acting uh, process as well in covering a controversial Which character. Can be cool. Yeah, I mean that can be all right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. I don't know if it was here. I like both these two actresses. Yes. I like that they're in a the movie together. Yeah. I just wish it was more electric then. Yeah. I just think the big moments that we get 
confrontation around the question on all of our minds uh, often doesn't reveal much more than having emotion charge the scenes themselves. It's no different, once again, than just repeat information again and again, Mm -hmm. uh, this time with some heavy crying. Uh, And that's where I say, again, believe it or not, I think Charles Melton is probably the best in this for this reason. He shows a lot of uh, depth to his character being... You know, let's let's call for what it is the victim, right, right, in this, uh, and it, it's great to see him hang with such tenured stars like Portman and more. Then, so, but sadly, I, I don't think it's enough, and I don't. More importantly, I don't think it's enough to escape this Netflix package that feels as forgettable as its own name. We're going to go ahead and give May December a fifty-six. Oh, fifties. Okay, so above fifties. Okay, so basically performances were really okay. Uh, story just kind of meh. Uh, and yeah. the way it developed. Just uh, meh. Uh, yeah, underdeveloped uh, doesn't – kind of circles the drain. It's been a while since we've um, uh, levied that critique. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but definitely a circle the drain type of movie. And yeah, I, I think it's it's designed to be a spotlight for emotional performances if Portman, Moore, or Melton – uh, is one of um, your favorites or, or or someone that you really want to see in a critical capacity, mm-hmm. that's where I think this lands on the positive side of the movie. Okay. okay, all right. So that's 56 for May, December. It's, it's for an audience somewhere out there. Just not <laughs> for the, just so not for much the masses. Net- you know, I think the puddle is going to be called Netflix. It's just called <laughs> Netflix. <laughs> uh, let's keep things moving here. Again, this is kind of a smaller film. It's out in theaters now. Kind of a big director. This is John Woo directing. This is called Silent Night. And I feel like this has some uh, similarities to a film that just came out as well. But Silent Night, Vin, Mm. how do we like it? Well, (laughs) I'll tell you what. It is um, a disappointing movie. Oh, no. Yeah. yeah. I I really was rooting for this to the point that um, producer Matt D was was challenging me and saying, why why are you actually covering this? What's what's, what's the matter with you? Uh, which um, I, I thought Woo was enough. I thought concept was enough, but uh, it, it really wasn't. Yeah, let's uh, start with John Woo, basically. We know him from Mission Impossible 2, <laughs> yep, which, yep. again, not many people like. You like. I love Mission Impossible 2. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's all. Yeah, that can be in the Predator 2 syndrome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. And, and Woo is a little bit of – he's extremely well-known and respected in many oh, ways, Oh, absolutely. Uh, a, a, the, I would, without a doubt, call him the godfather of Gung Fu. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, this, I mean – Wu is um, a huge force on shaping how action is done. If anything, uh, I didn't put it down in my notes, but I was kind of interested in returning to the Matrix movies, at least Matrix 1, to just study the influences of Matrix. And John Wu with like Hard Boiled and Better Tomorrow would absolutely be in that. Did he work on Raid Redemption? Uh, no, Raider? no. Okay, okay. So funny you bring it up because, uh, boy, could this movie learn a lot from Raid and also John Wick, uh, which I feel like it tries to copy in a lot of areas and just falls flat. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so. all right. So let's get into it a bit. What are we dealing yeah. with here? Well, uh, Silent Night uh, is a completely – not silent movie, but around a silent protagonist played by Joel Kinnaman. Uh, last year when we did the Christmas action movie episode, uh, we covered – we wound up spending the idea on 2022's Violent Night. Yes. Uh, and uh, I, honestly, I was just in borderline denial about this movie coming out because, boy, it would be just perfect for that episode. Right. I, was, I was kicking myself for spending the idea. Uh, I, I think – 
when it comes down to this movie, uh, I feel like it sounds – the perfect description for it is that it sounds better on paper than actually the experience yeah, of I it. Liked, I like how this movie is set up. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Silent Night stars Joel Kinnaman as his typical badass role but only becomes one when he is cut down in his prime by a gangster shooting him in the throat. That's right, folks. Silent refers to our main dude not having a voice because his vocal cords are shot out. Uh, But hold on to your seats because it's taken to one step further with little to no dialogue, period. Yeah, that's like zero just about. Yeah, Yeah. basically zero. You hear voices on the radio. You hear voices in the distance. But even characters interacting with him don't Don't talk to him for some reason. Yeah, it feels video game-ish in a lot of ways. So this is where I bring it back to a film that we watched recently, which is The Killer on Netflix. Mm. And you had made a comment of saying, I just wish he never talked. (laughs) Because it's very little dialogue. And boy, am I, I'll kick myself a second time right. for saying that because <laughs> this wasn't good. I'll take the killer any day of the week over this Oh, one. really? Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay, all right. I know, I know. It, it sucks because uh, I feel it, it, it fails on a, on a lot of different levels even though there's an attempt um, almost on everything it has going for it. Christmas movie, action movie. Uh, John kind Woo of a, movie? John, like, yeah, exactly. John Woo uh, coming back for this. But it, I, I would maybe be all right with this if the action was phenomenal. But even that uh, feels uncharacteristic uh, for our director. What is shocking is that how straight this movie plays it. Um, the establishing first 30 minutes are sad and slow with the focus exclusively on his grieving to give Kinnaman his, uh, his motivation. There is exactly zero comedy in this as well, which is uh, admittedly something that a lot of audiences could find refreshing in you know, modern day movies. Huh, okay. Uh, but it further drags the pacing to a painfully slow first hour uh, where there's no action. Hmm. Uh, it's just this silent brooding, uh, silent looking mean at these gangsters around town. You want that to be 15 minutes. Yes, exactly. Just kill John Wick's dog and get into it. And sure, sure. And I feel like a little bit of a hypocrite because what do I praise John Wick for? The slow burn, the, the build up to the action. Here we needed Kinnaman to just be going a John Woo character. Yeah. You know what I mean? He, <laughs> yeah. We needed him to just already know the skills. You know, I, I think worst of all, and I really mean worst of all, it's barely a Christmas movie. <laughs> I mean, Christ, you think with all of this. I mean, is that really? Oh, yeah, it really is. It really is. Um, You know, Christ, you think with all of this real estate in silent characters, you would get some Christmas tunes. It's insane how they couldn't even get the title track of Silent Night playing in the movie. It doesn't play in the movie. Okay, all right. (laughs) <laughs> I didn't. I didn't think you were into the Christmas idea so much with this. I, I, the thing is, is like, why make an action movie like this if it's not? Right. You know, it is. It, it's designed to be a Christmas action movie. Okay, like, okay and yes. I feel like that's a particular failure that it. It, it really doesn't feel like Christmas at all. And I, I just was so not about it. I was so, <laughs> like, it was just like, oh my god, what? Uh, and there's plenty of soundtrack to this, um, but like. It's all I don't know. It's it's kind of badass music, man. It, it didn't is. take cues from 
Well, even like a diehard that has sure. Christmas music sometimes going on in the background. Absolutely. And it, that, Absolutely. Adds, that adds some levity to it as yeah. well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So even if you don't want jokes being cracked or if, you know, with this no dialogue approach, um, even if uh, you're not looking to have actual jokes being slung by characters, right, right. you can have brevity in throwing a funny Christmas song or even annoying Christmas song in the mix of these action sequences. You know what I mean? I just think it was, it was just a total failure at, at what it was going for. You've changed. <laughs> <laughs> that guy wants to see more Christmas. I want, yes. I, I Out of this premise, I, I wanted more Christmas in it. It's, it's exactly like 2% Christmas. Action sequences feature a lot of slow-mo, uh, which is 100% on brand uh, for John Woo, of course. Um, but it is a pathway to the dark side. The dark side in this case being mid-budget CGI. Mm, okay. <laughs> and uh, mid-budget CGI that does not look great. Um, if anything, we'll touch on uh, CGI a little bit with Godzilla minus one and with almost a you know, staggeringly small budget does a great job. Yeah, in 15 comparison. million only to make that film. Yeah. 15 mil. Yeah. Honestly, one of the more frustrating parts is how much the story makes you wait for the action. It's the exact opposite of what this needed. I'll give some credit to it showing extensive training to make things feel realistic and make the motivation there for Kinnaman and the audience. But this movie did not need to be realistic. This needed to be a crazy John Woo action film. Yeah. Uh, Christmas themed. Right. A Christmas John Woo action film. I mean, that it, was the elevator pitch. <laughs> I was told I was betrayed <laughs> in the theater. A dude snoring in the back. Are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was so... That is the thing with John Wick. I understand there's slow moments of John Wick, but you're in a different realm when you're watching those yeah, films. It yeah. really is. Let's take 15 minutes to get the dog, kill the dog, and here we go. Maybe, sure. maybe 20. Sure. You know what I mean? And this is an hour and 44. I think the first John Wick is right around there. Yeah. yeah. Um, you can't be wasting you know, more than half the film. Yeah. Well, more than half the it, film. It's little with, things with too. It's it's uh, it's not giving spotlight to your villain. Um, okay. You know, uh, again, John Wick. I'm trying my best not to bring it up, but it's also the spotlight you give to making a compelling villain by having everyone be silent. We don't really get much more depth behind the villain other than, oh, yeah, he's a badass gangster type with some mm -hmm. crazy tattoos. Uh, I feel like that, once again, hurts pacing most of all because we can see him work out angrily and train <laughs> right, right. for the first hour before a single soul dies. But it's just like, uh, I don't care. I don't think the inciting incident is enough. And I think it, it the... The feel of the movie, the the feel of the story is dulled by just so much silence, so much silent <laughs> night, and no Christmas music. Uh, once we finally get there, it's primarily car action, too, which feels a little bit too late to copy John Wick. I'll give some credit. Wu is an absolute lunatic with his shots, okay. as usual. He just doesn't play by any rules. Uh, some of his editing choices are so stylized that they make other parts of the film feel boring mm -hmm. once again. Mm -hmm. um, in the very beginning, there's this shot that zooms in on the wife's eye, and it's just like no one – no one who told him he could do that. It's just it's it's ridiculous. I I think this film was just disappointing on so many levels. Uh, was it outwardly bad? Maybe nah. not. 
I feel like it just failed at what it was going for. You know, we talked about, you know, with with Waterloo hitting kind of the marks it was after, yeah. being the right fit. This was the wrong fit in every way. I want to make an odd comparison to close this out because the movie really doesn't deserve much more time. Um, <laughs> uh, but it's not to other action films. Like I said, frankly, this movie could learn uh, a lot from many places, mainly The Raid and John Wick, which I think it rips off. It rips off also another stairwell scene that mm. feels right out of the raid rather this movie reminded me of Skinamarink earlier this year Ah. both having these concepts of utter silence that certainly sound interesting on paper but fall very very short when actually experiencing the film Um, this movie did not have it on either side of concept or Christmas we're gonna go ahead (laughs) ahead and give Silent Night a 33 wow 33% yeah wow Uh, it was uh, <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> I mean, that's very disappointing. I thought for sure, just because of the talent behind it, that we were going to get something. I know. I or know. just be like, okay, bad movie, but act, like boys watch action right. flick. Boys watch, uh, good action, uh, but it's it's a copycat. Maybe in, John in Woo. I mean, it sounds like Chad Stelhoski mm-hmm. is the man now. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. absolutely. Who is the guy who did Raid and Raid Redemption? Uh, that's a. Gareth, uh, wait, I actually have uh, Gareth Evans. Okay, uh, is the guy. Is he Korean? Uh, no, okay. actually, uh, he's a white guy. <laughs> it sounds very white. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, he uh, he has that. Uh, I, that I believe the raid comes from uh, Indonesian fight industry. Oh, okay, gotcha. Uh, which gotcha. is which is interesting, and um, just so but nothing else like. As it. far as like a top of the industry now, it is Chad Selhoski. Yeah, which I, is, which you know, hey. Good for him. I think so. I think so. Okay, all right. So that's 33% for Silent Night. Let's keep things going now. You've been excited to watch this one. I, like I said, <laughs> I saw this in theaters. This is Dream Scenario. Uh, this is an A24 production directed by a guy named uh, Christopher Borgley. Yep. I'll tell you where we know him from, actually. Oh, what? But this is also <laughs> one. <laughs> I really don't uh, I really don't know. Uh, we'll get into it. But after, okay. <laughs> after three or four Nick Cage films, I think, this year, this one is actually getting some buzz. Mm, yeah. Um, again, there was His like- one Good one. There was will. one that came out right around Dream Scenario. Yeah. But finally, this has some legs to it. People are talking about his performance a lot. Yeah. Uh, and it's A24. So let's get into it a little bit. This is Dream Scenario. Vin, how'd you like it? Uh, well, Dream Scenario, definitely a, uh, a very interesting film. I would uh, call it kind of an absurdist dark comedy. Uh, finally got this one under the belt with it doing well enough in limited release to get a wide one. Like I mentioned on the podcast, this had one of my favorite trailers from the year. Uh, not that that's a long list at all, uh, <laughs> but it was kind of capturing a retro vibe where um, the premise felt like a good throwback film. But more than anything, it seemed like a perfect fit for our crazy boy, Nick Cage. Um, he gets to act dramatically, and his beloved, insane, manic side can pepper the runtime in these dream sequences. Um, this is also being produced by the equally insane Ari Aster, and uh, felt like something I would see either way after the anomaly that was Bo is Afraid. Uh, uh, so... <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I was I was interested to to see what he was putting his money towards uh, <laughs> with this dream scenario. Like I said, is this absurdist dark comedy uh, with most of the runtime feeling like a Charlie Kaufman project, such as 1999's Being John Malkovich. It's very meta. It kind of exists in a in a weird pacing as well with the film. Mm-hmm. Nick Cage is a nerdy biology professor named Paul Matthews who is suddenly and mysteriously showing up 
doing nothing in nearly everyone's dream. Uh, his study of evolutionary traits might be the only crumb of information we get at pointing to an explanation of the phenomena. Nonetheless, he has skyrocketed into fame as millions of people experience his persona while sleeping. Uh, things take a much darker turn, though, when dreams turn into brutal nightmares and all around innocent Paul having none of the answers. I would say it's been a while since we mentioned it, but uh, this is the best example in a while of what an A24 film feels oh, like. Oh, big time. Okay. <laughs> you know, in being unexpected, in having creepy <laughs> vibes, uh, and kind of building to an ending that chooses to be dark. Uh, I say chooses specifically because there are moments in the story that – uh, we could be given more concrete answers for why all of this is happening. Happening, It would, honestly, I think, result in a drastically different experience. Um, uh, a lot of this ex- experience is just because Paul Matthews and Nick Cage, he's kind of like blowing in the wind. He's just kind of yeah. going with it yeah. here. To my disappointment, the real experience was quite different than the trailer. I don't think this represented its trailer too much uh, or the, the brevity yeah. or the lightness of that trailer. <clears throat> it's much more darker. Honestly, most of all, I feel like the story has a difficult message to unpack around fame, cancel culture, and how we react to attention. Uh, So much so that, again, I've come a long way since my Nope review. I'm confident uh, in my own reviews that I can say I kind of didn't get the point of this film. Oh, Uh, I kind of didn't understand that by the end, what was the point of all this uh, other than the, you know, just being an absurdist comedy with Nick Cage? My hope was this film. My first note, by the way, is a definite product of A24. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. I kind of liked the premise. I thought it was, I just, I thought it was a cool story Mm -hmm. to go off of. Definitely where they went. I think this movie is strongest in end of first act, getting into the second act a little bit. Mm. As we're seeing more people's dreams, I wish they just spent two weeks in a writer's room and be like, what's some of the craziest dreams? Absolutely. It would have been fun to go through more. Um, But those scenarios were cool. Those sequences were cool. Mm -hmm. The fame or search for fame, it gives us a reason or believable reason of why your character is acting the way he is mm-hmm. uh, for half the film. Mm-hmm. Then I wish it focused more on the family aspect, yeah. and it didn't. It kind of went towards another way, and it felt boring, slow, and unimportant. Mm. And I can only imagine that's when, especially when you were like, what's what's the point of this? Yeah. Well, why are we here exactly? It felt like it almost was uh, unnecessarily beating up his character. It felt cruel in some ways, where I didn't understand why that cruelty was was being done, uh, what message it was trying mm-hmm. to get across yeah. through um, uh, exactly where this story goes, where I absolutely agree with you 100%. I wish the entire movie was just going through all the different dreams people were having because the film craft here is, I think, what's impressive about it. Yeah, so. and, how, and how we get into it, I mean, really, the first two-thirds of the film I'm kind of all right with, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it gets to a point where it's just – Things aren't developing quick enough. Mm. And where the story goes is not strong. Right, right. And it's a, and it's kind of a shame because I think there's there's a pathway that they could go, like I said, going towards more of the family route or yep. what this does to a family that could be touching of the heart more. Sure. You know, have more impact. Or have, have more, something poignant to have say. Have more depth or sad. Yeah. Um, and I think it could have – it could make – 
an ending better, whether yeah. that's redemption or even continuing to fall apart, sure. kind of. Sure, absolutely. Uh, but but what I really loved about this film and why I, I would say it is it is worth a watch, especially I mean, it, it, maybe if only you are a Nick Cage fan <laughs> is uh, is just uh, little things around how the film is presented. I love the editing here; it's very cle- clever and adds to some of the visual comedy that associates with Nick Cage just popping up in people's dreams. Um, in this way, I feel the movie exceeded my expectations. Um, mm, okay. When characters explain their dreams to Cage, we are constantly cutting into the scenes themselves showing outrageous situations that he pops up in. Uh, I would say the visual variety on screen is great, um, showing dozens of different styles that we are – this is just so entertaining to see play out with Nick Cage just walking on set. He feels like he's walking on set, you know, he, he's like he doesn't belong, which uh, I feel like really speaks volumes of how well crafted these dream sequences yeah, are definitely. and, and the, the purpose of the film. I just wish there was more. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I've never, well, and here's the note I've never seen anything from our director, Christopher Borgley, uh, but this movie shows um, why a director editor talent can be such a powerhouse in the entertainment side of a film, of course. Uh, leaning on uh, uh, one of my favorite directors, Edgar Wright, of course. But oh, he's wh- so involved. Yeah. So basically, this director, what's his name again? Borgley. Borgley. Yeah. <laughs> um, Christopher Borgley. He he has done a bunch of shorts, but he's also done, I believe, uh, one, maybe two. Uh, second thing he's ever done uh-huh. was a music video. Okay. So he's also a music video director, which is on theme for this <laughs> yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's for one of my favorite songs from a guy that we both like that no one else knows is to- Todd Terje. <laughs> Oh, really? Yeah. So we're going to have to watch that later now. Hell yeah, absolutely. uh, Yeah, the music video for Inspector Norse is Uh, is the song. Great great track. Right, great track, exactly. Wow. Second thing he's ever done. And then just a ton of shorts, a barrage of shorts. Yeah. And only recently getting into some more feature-length stuff. Mm, Interesting. So – I think the only thing that really uh, keeps this movie going is Nick Cage. Mm, Yeah. Right? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're only there for him. And I would say this is probably top five of the many, many movies that he's been doing. Mm. His anywhere from two to five a year or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think this is one of his best since his Charlie Kaufman adaptation role. Oh, really? And wow. I, and I like what he does here because Charlie Kaufman, he was going off of a real person. Yes. And Charlie Kaufman was also uh, involved in that project. Yep. Where this was, he kind of had to invent this character mm. and then do the character. Yep. And I don't, fe- and I feel like he made it his own. Mm-hmm. He invented a guy, and I felt like he played this guy really, really well. Yeah. Um, the way he talks, his mannerisms, we get a little bit in the cage. Yep. But his sta- nerdiness. Yeah, uh, but he stays yeah. in the rubric of this guy, and I think it, he differentiates himself from that Charlie Kaufman yep. adaptation that he did an adaptation. Sure, sure. Um, and that was cool to see. So it was good to see him in a good performance. Similar ner- neurotic vibes uh, of that. Yeah. Um, th- yeah. There were definitely. Yeah. Uh, I also enjoy the the intellect of the character uh, being in his like kind of professor field and wanting to go to high end dinner parties and whatnot. Right. You know the things he desires of the fame and then how that fame turns around on him. Right. Very know? stubborn because yeah. he has intellect, also yeah. stubborn because technically he is right yeah. and he can't get over the fact that maybe he just needs to cool his jets. Right. Right. Um, so there's some fun with the film. I just found it to be probably 20 minutes too long. Mm. And like I said, uh, just that third act. I just think sinks it, and that's when you're like, okay, you know, yeah, pretty much good here. I, I yeah, I, I don't know if ending earlier. Uh, I, I'm not sure. It's just I, the route that they take. I'm not a fan of. Yeah, I, I was just, I was really kind of searching 
because clearly this movie is trying to say something, but I really don't know what it's trying to say. This is so funny. Andrew about and I fame. had the same conversation. Really, mm-hmm. really. I, it's just like, I, and I was really trying to unpack it, but um, this, this, folks, this does have an odd ending, which uh, I would say it feels a bit meaningless. Uh, but maybe that is also the point in a story around hmm. dreams. This, this surprises me. Really, the ending, like the last, like two minutes. Mm. Is that what you're saying? Uh, last half hour. Okay, the uh, okay. the uh, declining action, if right, you will. Yeah. Uh, I would say uh, plenty of dialogue is positioned around these events, especially in Paul's professor crowd. But I found it difficult to see what they all point at, um, especially when this character is just beat up so much, both literally and metaphorically, <laughs> uh, for something he has no control over. I mm-hmm, mean, it felt yeah. that that's where I, I say cruel. It felt uh, a little unneeded. Uh, I don't know. Message aside, I think this is yet another solid movie in Nick Cage's later career, despite him still acting in uh, in many uh, quantity over quality. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's also uh, interesting that in the press circuit for this, he's now talking about finally retiring, which I guess the back taxes. I have not taxes, seen him doing a lot of press on this. Yeah. yeah. I guess the back taxes are paid off then. So. <laughs> well, what's he saying? He's giving us dates? Uh, he us- says he has a handful of movies left in him. So that's six months for Nick Cage. <laughs> oh right. no, no, <laughs> no! Right, right. I still want Pig Two. There was rumblings of Pig <laughs> oh, Two. Oh really? Yeah. <laughs> I think best. Yeah. Per- by the way, uh, uh, Pig he was great in. We love Pig. Yes. Um, and, but I also really liked. You thought it was all right, but uh, he, I thought he was great in last year's. Um, not everything everywhere. Um, massive weight of unbear- oh, yeah, unbearable yeah. weight of massive talent. Yeah, where he played himself. That was a good movie. Sure, and a comedy that people should go and watch. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> let, let it be restated that I may not be the biggest Nick Cage fan. You know? I think, but I think, you love him. Yes. It, I, I've actually learned it, it, to like him a lot more, especially after watching Adaptation. Yeah, that was especially a big one. Pig, uh, and this as well, I would say. Yeah. Um, he, he, he does a lot. It's That'll just that it's him. hard to tell when – when is the indicator? I actually think it, when he dyes his hair uh, is is the indicator on what type of role we're getting with Nick I Cage. I would say you're trying to study. I, <laughs> you're not even close <laughs> no. to, to opening that that seventh dimension. I don't even know. <laughs> I wonder what's going to do. I, I, want, I bet he's going to do National Treasure 3 and no. be like, okay, I'm good. I'm, Wait, I'm, I've got the money. There wasn't a three? Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay. There's right. going to be a three. No, I mean, that's certainly a moneymaker right there. I don't want him to go. Has the ship sailed with National Treasure though? Who gives a crap about National Treasure except like us? I think I think I think when they do it again, people are going to care. Okay. Um, Okay. And I think I mean Nick Cage because he went away. Yeah. And he had National Treasure, and then he went away, (laughs) and then he was making all these films, and then finally he got some. I forget which one brought him back. Was it Mandy? Maybe. Oh yes, I think Mandy is a definitely turning point for like whoa. He's he's and he still does crap. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. There was just don't do the crap. Right, he's working too much. There's still crap like within this year, right? (laughs) Like two others. Yeah, yeah. Oh shit! Anyway, but I I would say give this film some some of your time, uh, especially if you're a fan of uh, of Nick Cage. But also, at least from my my position and um, my perspective on this, uh, some impressive filmmaking from Borgley. Personally. I will be keeping an eye out for Borgley uh, and future projects from him because I really did like what was done in so much variety of tone and feel in these dream sequences. I think it shows a lot, um, a lot of range uh, for him as a director, a writer, and an editor as well. With that said, we're going to go ahead and give Dream Scenario a 69. 
Okay, 69. I think it belongs right there. I'll be honest. I don't I don't have a Tommy Two Shoes for this. Oh, really? Uh, same with Waterloo. I just don't care enough. When you're saying, I think definitely make time, I don't know. I think if, mm, I think if you're into okay. seeing yet another interesting, if you want to see kind of an interesting story yep. and a good Nick Cage performance, that's yep. when you watch this. A meta story. Right. Uh, you know, uh, a, a different type of story. You know, this is an A24 cutter. story. <laughs> don't worry. There's fart noises in this, too. <laughs> Which is A24 loves it. They, they love, love the they fart lo- noises. Yeah. <laughs> fart jokes um, are, are back. I just don't care enough. Something inside me wants me to make it a rule where I need to give a two shoes on every Nick Cage film we watch. <laughs> oh, wow. Just Nick Cage specifically. Because I think that it just belongs somehow. But that might be a retroactive thing. Maybe once his career is over, I'll take a look right, at Right, right. Well, that'll be special, the, the Tom retrospective. Um, but, but let's just say 69, I think, is a good score. I think it's actually okay. pretty fair. I think yeah. you're doing pretty good justice with that. I think because, it, it, uh, personally for me, it didn't crack 70s because uh, of uh, actual film experience. But I feel— I think it falls flat, too. You know, yeah, exactly. I, I think in film craft, though, and acting and concept, it's there. Yeah, you know, so. very good. Um, and same thing with let's keep an eye on Christopher Borgley, this director, because <laughs> yeah. the last thing he did before this was a short because he's done most of his stuff is short. Interesting. It's a five minute short movie called Willem Dafoe. <laughs> OK, literally the write up is a short film about what's his name again? The actor Christopher Borgley tries hard to remember. And it's just called Willem <laughs> Dafoe. <laughs> so I like where this guy goes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Definitely interesting. All right, Finn. Let's get into our final film here. I don't know if this is too much on people's radar. One, mm. we are Godzilla heavy. Sure. Uh, but, well, the podcast is very Godzilla yeah, heavy. Yeah, yeah. But we do have this show. We have some of the American films that have just coming out. We're mixing him with King Kong now. Yep. And this is a really true Japanese-made uh, film here. Yes, a mainline Toho release. Yes. Uh, if you've listened to our special films. Now, this has been released into theaters. I'll, I'll take a look at actually how much of a wide release it really is. Mm, but you sure. have no problem seeing it, I believe. Oh, uh, no, yeah. yeah. If anything, I was I was shocked uh, of how uh, of the availability of it uh, being – I mean, it is a full-fledged Japanese movie. Right. So, so kind of cool. Let's get into it, though, Vin, and, and describe it a bit. This is called Godzilla Minus One. It's directed, directed by Takashi Yamazaki. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm always trying to figure out how do we pair this up with the Godzilla special? But maybe let's just treat this with a movie mm. uh, of itself, talk about the movie, and then if it fits somewhere in that special, we can kind of talk about it. Sure. Well, I, I think and, the good thing about this is that this is cut from a different cloth. Uh, I can successfully say among all the hype and maybe a little bit of overhype around this film, depending on, you know, people are really calling this not only the best Godzilla film, the best film of 2023, uh, okay, which, wow. uh, yeah, I mean, you know. <laughs> I knew it was getting good buzz. I don't right, think it was that good. You're right. Exactly. So uh, I, I feel like this is cut from a different cloth in how it's and how it feels. It does almost in a lot of ways doesn't feel like any of the Godzilla films wow. we covered. Any. Of them. That's so. okay. That's very surprising. Exactly. Um, I, one thing I will say Godzilla, as far as Toho Godzilla Productions, mm-hmm. which there's now 37 made sure. and one in the canon or one being made. Yep. Uh, there's four eras. Mm hmm. And our last era started in 2016, and it was jumped off with Shin Godzilla, a film that you absolutely love. Love. Since then, we've had really only three animation films come out. Yeah, yeah. They're they're anime, and they're also a Netflix tie-in as well. Right. And then other than that, we've had the American-done films. Exactly. So this is really our next um, live-action kind of Japan production. Does this belong in that era, or are we in a new era? It's tough. Uh, I I think we— the mark for me is a redesign of Godzilla himself, uh, marking oh, those I different thought, eras. I thought Toho was like, 
very specific as far as their errors. I uh, thought, yeah. I thought they set them. Uh, they are. In this case, though, from what I researched, it does seem like it is falling in the Reiwa era, even though it is a, uh, I mean, the, the Godzilla here compared to Shin Godzilla are totally like different. totally different. And, and okay. also different how they're used as like monsters and like a, a cinematic type of thing. Okay, so. very interesting. Okay, so let's just get into the film on itself, Godzilla Minus One. It's my understanding that this title, which I can't stand personally, oh, you don't, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. but the idea is that this is post-World War II, Japan is totally flattened and it's yep. basically ground zero yes but now big bad godzilla shows up and so we got to bring it down a notch <gasps> oh to minus one really oh i thought oh yeah no yeah. I, I thought minus one was referring to uh it's the first prequel ever done to godzilla 54 uh no godzilla has ever touched a a, a post-world war ii or before a 1954 type of uh setting interesting so it's it's not godzilla one it's godzilla minus, minus one <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't like the title but I no think, i so. believe it is yeah it is yeah. It, this is what is what is less than ground zero. Wow. Minus one. <laughs> I still hate the name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not great. <laughs> uh, this comes from, uh, uh, like Tom said, to uh, Takeshi Yamazaki, uh, who I know from uh, a recent Loop in the Third movie. Um, his fame comes from adapting a lot of stories from anime, so I was pleased to see that he was writing an original story here as well. Folks, if you have not heard the hype around this film online, you will be shocked to know that the story and the writing make it one of the strongest Godzilla movies to date. Uh, a statement I am frankly stunned by because story was never a good quality in these films. <laughs> you know, I mean, stories <laughs> is kind of what you just sat through uh, on this. Uh, only very rarely does the story, you know, dip into a good quality. It's funny how we geared up with that Godzilla special, though, uh, now having a double release of uh, a Japanese and American Godzilla uh, film coming to theaters, and the trailer for the uh, next Godzilla King Kong film dropping during this hype. It mm-hmm. felt very appropriate yep. that they... They, they put it into this. That's very CGI, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for real. <laughs> this is a full-fledged Toho production, though, for the mainline Godzilla uh, of the Japanese films. Uh, and most likely, what I thought was going to be the start of a new era, uh, I don't know if that is the case uh, with how they're de- describing it, whether it's in the Reiwa era. Uh, for me, our boy Goji disporting a new design is, um, is, is, is the main feature there. And much like with Shin Godzilla, we also share any man in suit design for full CGI, further updating this 70 year franchise. 70 years. 70 years. Yes, sir. <laughs> Unreal. Unreal. <laughs> Godzilla Minus One does the unbelievable by setting itself before the beloved original 1954 uh, and gives us a post-World War II story with uh, Japan in shambles. Uh, I call this unbelievable because the kaiju movies are largely mainstream popcorn fun and probably scared off from the drama tied innately to the atomic bombings. Minus One, however, leans into this drama, uh, without a doubt being the most emotionally charged monster film I have ever seen. Okay, Uh, a lot of human elements. Yeah, a lot of human elements. We follow Koichi, uh, a cowardice kamikaze pilot with a surprisingly meaningful arc. His fear of war and combat only thrust him further towards a life he wants to protect. After a mysterious confrontation with a proto-Godzilla, we see Koichi build a family through hardship and determination. But despite how heartwarming that story may be, that story of resolve may be, uh, Godzilla is fated to ruin this man's life at every turn. Folks, you can see in that summary of... 
how this film is just cut from a different cloth. I, I don't think there was, you know, in, in all of the movies that I covered, <laughs> short reviews or not, you know, mini <laughs> reviews or not, never was there a focus on themes of family. <laughs> I mean, themes of, of of anything around this. Not only that, hmm. the drama infused in this film is both personal and national nationalistic. Um, I mean, the fact that the film and the story juggles themes of PTSD and survivor guilt is truly insane hmm. in a monster movie. Uh, while watching the film, I asked myself, was this silly to be putting in so much drama in a kaiju movie? Was it like, uh, you know, oh, pearls uh, before swine? Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I can comfortably, confidently say that Minus One earns its tone, though, by being genuine and authentic. Not once does this World War II setting dip into exploitation of the era, and the focus on family strikes a surprising chord, especially when considering the modern issues of Japan. This family focus, I feel was heartwarming, uh, inspiring, and uh, kind of around a, a, a trauma bonding mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. with these. Uh, you know, Koichi's family is not a normal family. Um, it is a uh, inherited child and, and a woman he technically doesn't, you know, romantically love, but they stay together through the hardship. Again, these are not... This is not a description for anything Godzilla so far. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, so I think it's authenticness uh, and how that hits for maybe even some modern issues as well I think is very, very impressive. Yes. I, and the only caveat I would say, as long as it is portrayed well, as long as, long as the actors are doing a good mm -hmm. job, as long as it looks good on screen. Yes. Uh, this is kind of reminiscent a little bit of the show on Apple. Oh, really? And it's garbage. Oh, interesting. It's just, interesting. It's just dumb. You, you don't, you feel nothing oh, for the okay, characters okay. or with the characters. Interesting. If this has a heart behind it, which sometimes just ja Japanese productions just can mm -hmm. get that better. Sure. I mean, yeah, look at, I look mean, at the, uh, the Ghibli movies. Right. Oh, example. yeah, definitely. Yeah. But that makes sense that, you know, we have mass destruction going on yeah. by a creature. Yeah. It's good to get some, um, some human aspect. Sure. Because sometimes it's just, just skyscrapers filled with thousands of people are just dying yeah. and it has no real effect on the actual audience member, really. Right, yeah. right. I, like I said, I, I think I was – what I was wrestling with when watching this, I was saying, is this too serious? Is the drama like ridiculous to put with a mm. Godzilla film? But I, no. think it, I think it earns it. In In a very uncharacteristic note from me, this feels in a good way like – how a 50s film is trying to be inspiring and trying to, like, mm. pick yourself up by the bootstraps. Similar vibes here. It works, though, because there's so much tragedy around this post-World War II setting. Sure. And then more being piled on top with a monster attack. With now, this. in 2016, Shin Godzilla, it all – you liked – Very different Or, or I'll film. say again, you liked that film a lot. But that dealt with – that was a very serious yep. dealing with the drama of things, but from the government side of things yep. and how to deal with this. So – you know, it kind of just sounds like you also just serious Godzilla films is nice. Because you don't yeah. always get serious Godzilla films. You In definitely fact, don't. A lot or not. <laughs> you definitely don't. So yeah. this is the new era that we're getting, the new age of Godzilla. Yeah, and, and from, maybe from Toho. Serious. That's I'm good with that. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's why this still falls in the Reiwa era or or however they're defining this, uh, even though they're very different, very different yeah. films. Yep. Uh this being a smaller film with family focus and honestly Shin Godzilla playing out more like a like a Star Trek episode where it's about problem solving and and, mm, and brainstorming. Yeah. Um, so 
Uh, best of all is that smaller scale for the story, which is a quality I loved in some of the earliest Godzilla films, uh, mainly Godzilla versus Mothra in 1964, where we don't see the typical government involvement here as well, since the government is in shambles right, in right. that transitionary period coming out of World War II. They're not really – they don't have a part to play. Um, comedically, Godzilla versus Mothra was more about like a legal dispute over a mo- uh, about a monster <laughs> egg. So, I mean, it's not well, – it wasn't great. But here there is a similar quality that the people of Tokyo are organizing on their own and once again comes off as authentically inspiring in a lot of ways. Mm, okay. Uh, I think that's why people are – Walking away so positively on this, especially in international audiences, that there is a a heartwarming story that is oddly within this kaiju monster horror. Uh, again, is is not something that is done before in Godzilla, uh, and is really pulled not, off well. Not done before, really. No. I mean, I listen. <laughs> well, I know you would know. You would be the guy, right? You would yeah. be the guy to know. Um, but I just that surprised me because I always thought there was some type of love interest a lot in some of these, mm. or maybe I'm just accustomed to the American ones. Yeah, the four or five main American films. True, especially uh, the I think it's 2014, the Brian Cranston one. Right. Yeah, that certainly has a kind of a impacted family focus. But I feel like the follow through on this mm. is that if. The government was to step in and it was now suddenly the nation of Japan versus Godzilla. Mm-hmm. It would lose that focus a little bit. In this, it does a great job at the the people of Tokyo kind of rallying in a in a, in a again authentically inspiring kind of way. Okay, cool. Uh, so, uh, as far as visuals go, there are actually some cool shoutouts to Godzilla fifty four, such as the iconic train eating sequence and also a nod to the oxygen destroyer. Design wise, Godzilla is reminiscent of that early otter face that we talked about <laughs> so much before. Uh, but luckily, coming nowhere close to it being silly or uh, the defender of Japan type of persona in early movies. He is very much the antagonist. He is very much mean, uh, and that definitely is uh, lean towards the. It definitely leans towards the horror themes. Uh, his back has super jagged spikes right out of the yeah. Millennium Era in the 2000s, and he is satisfyingly mean to fill the role of a monster that we hate because of these dramatic mm-hmm. elements. I think more than ever. It was important that the anger of the people against Godzilla was important here, uh, that we didn't muddy that with him possibly defending Japan or something like oh, that. Oh, sure. As taking so off the, many times. Yeah, taking off the hero role. Exactly. I, I'll, make, I'll make a couple comments, too, just of what he looks like because <clears throat> it's such a big element of per Godzilla. Sure, film. Sure. How does Godzilla look? Yeah. His face is very face-like. Okay. It's almost like they could have put a voice to him. Oh, like wow. like Smog the Dragon almost. I almost <laughs> feel like he's too. I don't know. It, it, he's it's I, the otter. I don't know if he's too mouthy. Yeah, yeah, too yeah. Otter. yeah. Uh, They made his lar- his arms bigger and yes. more muscular, mm-hmm. and it's weird to see a Godzilla that's like ready to box <laughs> when we're used. Where we're a little bit more accustomed sometimes to T Rex arm Godzilla. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so it is a little bit striking to see him with just. I know he has shoulder. You know, just his shoulders, his chest, his neck, and face. He seems. I, I can't say more human, mm. but more just 
Looks like a brawler. More like a, he <laughs> he's just, a brawler. He's, looks like a brawler, basically. <laughs> I'm sure Toho would be delighted to hear that I'd, because they I'd, would probably love nothing more to turn around and do a bunch of other we, verses, <laughs> you know. Well, let's just say, like, what did you think of this compared to sickly or gangly Shin Godzilla? Oh, Godzilla. Uh, well, let me get it straight. Shin Godzilla is like my favorite Godzilla. Okay, gotcha. All right. uh, and that's mostly because of the design with uh, Hideki Ono. Here, I think I think it's a good mix uh, because there are so many nods to specifically Godzilla. Okay. 1954, uh, the first one. If this is to play in the canon of Godzilla at all, I think that makes sense as well. Him being yeah, more, um, I don't know, sea-based creature, uh, lizard-like. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, which, is, and, which is good. Yeah. I just feel like there, it looks like he can talk. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's weird to say, but it looks like he's a character that can talk. Well, I'm happy to say, spoiler alert, he doesn't talk. <laughs> but overall, though, uh, I can happily say, believe the hype on this film. With a $15 million budget, you might expect it be the quality in production to land it alongside many Kaiju B movies still coming out. Mm-hmm. But Yamazaki and team have hit every mark that they were gunning for, and... This effectively lands as my new third favorite Godzilla film. We're going to go ahead and give Godzilla minus one a 74. 74% for Godzilla minus one. Okay, so folks, if you're not aware of our Godzilla special, you (laughs) can go ahead and check it out. You can, all the time codes are there too, so you can can jump around. around, absolutely. um, Because we covered 15 films on that episode, and only out of those four, Vin thought were essential to understand Godzilla, the essential Godzilla movies we call them. Yeah. But technically... This would be the fifth. I would say so. It's almost uh, a shame we didn't wait for this now. <laughs> it's almost a tragedy. Because we man. wanted five on there. Yeah, yeah. I really did want five. Wow, uh, excellent. And uh, on top of this being in, you know, one of the eras, uh, yeah, I, I, I think uh, this is well-deserved uh, to to spotlight in that way. And, and it's such a big deal. A $15 million budget is nothing yeah. today. Nothing. nothing. I mean, that that is an insidious budget. Yeah. And with the sheer scale <laughs> yeah, and the so size. that's so true. That is a blumhouse budget. Yeah. And in the size, I think insidious was 15. Yeah. And for the size and the fact that you're dealing with Japan in this film, how much mm-hmm. CGI you're just going to have to use yeah, that exactly. you weren't completely thrown off mm-hmm. or that this just wasn't like a TV, TV quality, sure. TV movie quality or something yeah. like that. Um, 74 really speaks volumes. Yeah. So very Absolutely. cool. Very Absolutely. cool. Godzilla minus one. Okay, folks, don't sleep on that. Uh, wow. Vin, looking at these films, looking at these scores here, anything else you want to add? Anything else to touch on? Uh, uh, got got, my, got plenty of new movies still in December. We are we are not we are not done yet. Exciting which for is next great. week, though. Yeah, exactly. We were thirsty, I feel like, for some of this, for a lot oh, of this year. Especially for, I mean, you and me know, uh, planning for uh, the first couple of months of 2024, it's, we're going to be thirsty again. Oh, that's okay. We have some great, we have some great shows plan for the yeah. uh, 24. Don't forget the Tom Daly's. Yes. That's why this December is so important too. We might have some big heavy hitters. Yeah, absolutely. Coming out. Uh, much like last year, how it was uh, at the very end, uh, we, we got some of the, the most important you films. You see how it is. They yeah, stack absolutely. them. At, right after Thanksgiving, that's when you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But next week we have Poor Things uh, with Emma Stone getting a lot of uh, a lot of love. And then of course uh, Papa Miyazaki with The Boy and the Heron. Uh, Finally and, uh, coming out. I am I am nervous. Nah. I mean, it's, it's probably the sixth time over Miyazaki has said he was going to be retiring after this film, so <laughs> So we'll see. But uh, I, I think it looks very good. And uh, it will be something I'll be watching in also English dub as well. And I think intentionally so because I think the English dub, dub cast is uh, pretty, pretty uh, Christian awesome. Christian Bale is back, correct? Yep. So 
Yeah, it's a famous director. If you want to get into director a little bit, because I think oh, it's, me, uh, I mean, do uh, people know is it general knowledge? Studio Ghibli, I think I think it's entered into a lot of public knowledge. But yeah, Hayao Miyazaki, uh, arguably the uh, the Godfather of anime. Honestly, <laughs> he's, he's the uh, a lot of I've, I've always referred to him as the Scorsese of the anime industry. So oh. that that'll that'll maybe <laughs> describe it a little. And bit. created Studio Ghibli, yes, which is just pumps out like Howl's Moving Castle, yeah. Other films <laughs> I can't think of. <laughs> we'll, we'll save that away. for next week. Okay, yeah, okay. We'll, we'll <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, all right, Vin. Thank you so much for watching these films here, Vin. Uh, thanks for stopping by. Folks at home will run it down one more time. We have Waterloo with a 71%, May, December with a 56%, Silent Night with a 33%, Dream Scenario with a 69%, and finally Godzilla minus one with a 74%. Folks, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week on the Daily Ratings Podcast. Hey, if you enjoyed the podcast, if you would, give us a good rating or tell a friend about us. If you're wondering if a film is worth the watch or just to see more movie ratings from Vince, be sure to stop by thedailyratings.com where we have our ever-expanding catalog of films. Also, if you found value in the podcast or our site, become a producer and go to the donations tab on thedailyratings.com. You can donate whatever amount of value you feel you receive from us. We're looking to build this into something large and great, folks, but we also want to be independent from those corporate sponsors. So we greatly appreciate any support from you all. So thanks so much, and we'll see you next time on the Daily Ratings Podcast. 